Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 for our time of study in God's Word uh, this morning. We're in a mini-series where we are focusing our attention on Jesus Christ and, and who is He. And uh, there are certain passages that we're making use of in that inquiry into who Jesus is. We have looked at Matthew 16, where Jesus was speaking with his disciples and he asked them the question, who do you say that I am? And we got to listen in on that conversation and learn things about Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God. But then we began to look at some other instances in the Gospels uh, where people are left staring at Jesus and asking the question, who is this? And uh, we, we saw in Mark 4 where Jesus on the Sea of Galilee had calmed that storm, uh, calmed the waves and uh, the wind of that storm. And when he had calmed the storm, the disciples were left sitting in the boat on the placid waters of the Sea of Galilee, staring at Jesus and asking the question, who is this whom even the wind and the seas obey? Uh, And then a few weeks ago, we looked at the story in Luke chapter five, where uh, Jesus healed the paralyzed man and also pronounced his sins forgiven. And we saw that there were religious leaders in the room who were left staring at Jesus in that moment and asking, who is this who blasphemes? So theirs was a closed minded question. Uh, that provided its own answer. He is not God. He's pretending to be God. He's acting like God, pretending that he can actually forgive sins. That makes him a blasphemer. Who is this blasphemer? Well, today we come to Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is going to be in the home of a Pharisee, Simon the Pharisee. And no doubt other Pharisees were there on this occasion, but a woman who was known to be a sinful woman comes in and begins to show Jesus uh, in an extravagant way her love for him, her adoration of him. Jesus receives her expressions of love and adoration, and he essentially looks at her and says, your sins have been forgiven. And the people in the room we're going to observe are left staring at Jesus and asking the question, who is this? Literally, here's their question. Who is this who forgives even sins? Now, some of your translations might have the word also in there or they might have even the word even placed differently in there. But literally, based on the word order, it's who is this? Who even sins forgives or who forgives even sins. In other words, who is this who forgives even the sins of a woman like this? So it's interesting, the story in Luke 5 and our story today, uh, people are responding to forgiveness that's been granted But the questions are very different. 
In Luke 5, it's who is this who blasphemes. Today, the focus is more on amazement at the nature of the sins that Jesus is uh, forgiving. Who is this who forgives even such sins? They are amazed and surprised at the particular sins that Jesus seems to be forgiving here. So we can learn much as we go through this story. Uh, Let me start off with, how many of you have heard of uh, Matt Chandler? He pastors a church somewhere in Texas. Okay. Um, I was watching a video not too long ago where he was telling um, about when he was a freshman in college, he found himself sitting next to a 26-year-old gal who was a single mom. She was back in school to earn a degree Uh, to be able to make a living for herself and her child. Matt found himself seated next to her, began a relationship with her, and seized the opportunities that he had in that developing friendship to share Christ and to speak of his grace and mercy to her. Um, Matt and his friends would even go over to her house and babysit her child for her on occasions when she needed that. Uh, This single mom was involved in an extramarital affair at the time, uh, involved in immorality with a married man. And so Matt had the opportunity, along with his friends, to speak to her about the lack of wisdom of being involved in something like that. Well, he was looking for ways to reach out to her, and uh, he got word that uh, one of his friends was in town. He played in a Christian band, and, and Matt approached this single mom, uh, and said, hey, I got a friend who's playing in a band at such and such an event, and would you like to come? And she said, sure, I'd, I'd, I'd love to come, uh, just thinking it was a concert of some sort. Well, they show up, and it was, a, um, you know, the, the band played, and Matt Chandler was very encouraged by just how Christ was being exalted, and he just felt really blessed that this 26-year-old uh, gal was with him experiencing uh, at all, but after the uh, the singing and the band was done, uh, the speaker for that occasion got up, and he said there was about a thousand people in attendance. And the speaker got up and almost right away just said, "I want to talk to you today on the subject of sex." And Matt said, "You know, I kind of groaned inside because I was thinking, man, I sure hope he handles this well." And carefully, and that at some point he puts the gospel and the grace of God on this. Because he's thinking about this girl seated, this lady seated next to him. And as the speaker began to speak, Matt said he took a beautiful red rose and he held it up for everyone to see. He says, everyone see this rose? And he began to feel the rose and to smell the rose. And he said, I want to, I want you to pass this around the room. I want everyone to touch it. I want you to feel the texture of it. I want you to smell this rose. Everybody. And he threw the rose out into the audience and, and those who were in attendance began to smell the rose and to feel it and pass it to the person next to them. The speaker then proceeded to deliver his message on the subject of sex. And I don't know what he said in that message, but Matt Chandler said it was the most horrific handling of the subject that he had ever personally sat through. He said it was fear-mongering at its best, and there was no grace, no gospel that was put on the subject at all. 
And Matt's sitting there as the message is wearing on next to this gal, this sinner seated next to him, looking at the speaker earnestly and just thinking to himself, what are you doing here? And uh, as the speaker was wrapping up his message, he said to the audience, where's my rose? Where's my rose? And at that point, one of the people in attendance brought up this rose that had been passed from person to person, hundreds of them. And by this point, as you can imagine, the rose was mangled, it was bent, petals had uh, fallen off, and the ones that were left were wilted. It was pretty pathetic looking. And at that point, the speaker held up the rose for everyone to see. And his big crescendo was to hold up that rose and to say to his audience, now who would want this? Who would want this rose? And Matt Chandler said, in that moment, I felt anger toward the speaker. He says, not just any kind of anger. It was, I want to hurt you kind of anger against that speaker. This man was holding up this mangled rose that had been used and abused, thinking that no one would ever want a rose like that. And his point was to his audience, basically, don't have sex, don't be immoral, because if you do, nobody is going to want you. But is that true? Is it true? If a person is immoral, is it true that no one would ever want them? Matt Chandler is sitting next to this 26-year-old gal, and he's sitting there realizing the speaker is missing the most incredible opportunity of all. And I'll let Matt tell you what he was thinking. He says, it was all I could do to not stand up and scream, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point of the gospel, that Jesus wants the rose. Amen? That is the point of the gospel, and that is the Savior that, that we all have. And we're not left to conjecture about that because we actually see that on display in the incident that is described for us in Luke chapter uh, 7. And we're going to go through this story, and we're just going to enjoy the narrative, and we're going to behold our Savior. Those of us who know Jesus, this is our Savior. If you're here today... You may, you may think, man, I'm the worst sinner in this room. No one in this room knows what I have done. I've sinned worse than anybody else. I'm here to tell you especially that you're in the right place and we've got really good news for you. We want to introduce you to this one named Jesus who forgives even the sins that you have committed. There's a sense in which those in... This house, as Jesus forgives this sinful woman, are asking the question, who forgives even sins like this woman has committed? A way of paraphrasing their question is, who is this who would want a rose like this? If you want to give a title to the message, it would be, who is this who forgives even sins? And we're going to observe seven developments uh, that are surrounding this question that gets asked in the midst of this incident. And we'll work through these developments as they lead us to this very important question that gets asked. 
And the first of these developments begins in verse 36, where we observe that Jesus receives a sinful woman's extravagant expressions of love. Jesus receives a sinful woman's extravagant expressions of love. Look at what he says in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees was requesting him to dine with him. And Jesus entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So you guys know who the Pharisees are. They were the religious people, the moral people, the holy people. And they thought they had it going on with God. They were righteous and everyone else um, was the sinners. So they were the holy ones and they looked down on other people. And Jesus even indicates uh, in the Gospels that when the Pharisees prayed, sometimes they would pray things like, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people, these lowlifes who do these bad things. I thank you that I am not like them. And they applauded themselves. They were the holy ones and everyone else uh, who were less moral, less religious were the sinners. And so one of these Pharisees is asking Jesus to come over to his home for a meal. And, and Jesus accepted this gesture of kindness from the Pharisee. And he enters the Pharisee's house and it says he's reclining at the table. Now, understand back in this day, they did not eat the way that we eat today. Um, we sit at tables that are about four feet off the ground and we sit on chairs. That's not what's happening here. Imagine a table that is a few inches off of the ground and no one's sitting on a chair. Everyone's reclining. Imagine everybody basically laying on their left side, resting on their left elbow, and they're eating their meal that way. I would lay up here and demonstrate if I could, but I think you get the picture. Um, and so uh, Jesus' feet would be pointing out away from the table uh, along with everyone else who's reclining and their feet would be pointed away from the table. Do you guys have a visual of that? Uh, if you imagine Jesus sitting in a chair, the table like we eat at today, uh, you're going to have a real hard time visualizing what happens next. So we got to have that visual uh, in mind. And so here he is reclining and, and dining with this Pharisee in the home of this religious person. Verse 37, and behold, a woman. That's literally how it reads. Behold, a woman in the city who was a sinner. There was a woman who came in to this gathering and Luke describes her as a sinner. Well, Luke knows theologically, being a companion of the Apostle Paul, that everyone in the room except Jesus was a sinner. But he singles this woman out as being a sinner. Simon gets described as a Pharisee. Luke knows he was a sinner too. But Luke describes and introduces this woman to us as a sinner. Why does he do that? He does that because Luke is describing this woman according to the way that the Pharisees and everyone else in the room would have viewed this woman. We don't know why she was described as a sinner. Some suggest that this woman may have been a prostitute of some sort. What we do know is that she had committed some acts of sin in her past or had still been doing that up until the recent present to such a degree that when everybody saw this woman, they thought of her sin. 
So just imagine being this woman and when people see you, when they talk about you, they always associate your sin with you. This was a woman that was viewed as being the sinner. If she was in a room, she was the sinner in the room. And this is a surprising development that this woman would show up in such a gathering. Behold, there was a woman in the city who was a sinner. And when she learned that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster vial of perfume. This would have been an expensive uh, perfume that she would have brought with her. It could have been a separate flask that she brought for this occasion. There's some indication that Jewish women would uh, actually wear a small alabaster vial of perfume around their necks, like a necklace with that uh, on it. Uh, No doubt this woman would have used the perfume to enhance her attractiveness to, to men. So she brings that with her. Look at what happens next. And standing behind Jesus at his feet. So he's reclining, his feet are pointing out. And she goes over to where Jesus is. And she's standing there initially. And she begins to weep. And not just kind of uh, weeping a little bit, but tears began to fall from her eyes. So much so that they fell from her eyes down upon the feet of Jesus It says she began to wet his feet with her tears. And no doubt by this point, she would have bent down, knelt down, and she began wiping them with the hair of her head. Uh, For a woman to loose her hair and unbind her hair in this way would have been a very brazen, inappropriate move in the mind's Of many, it would have been considered immodest, something that an indecent or loose woman would do. But this woman is wanting to express her adoration of Jesus and tears are falling from her eyes upon the feet of Jesus. She then takes her hair, unbinds it, and she begins to wipe Jesus' feet with her hair, wiping the tears away. And it says she was kissing his feet. This is just a radically brazen move. There are some instances uh, in ancient Jewish history of people kissing the feet of an honored rabbi. For a woman to do this is like virtually unheard of. Um, And so just imagine how stunning this is that this woman would show up and what people's reaction would be. She's clearly in deep emotion. Tears are falling from her eyes. She kneels down, she unbinds her hair, she's wiping the tears off of Jesus' feet with her hair, and then she begins repeatedly, the idea is, uh, kissing his feet. And then it says she anointed his feet with the perfume. This uh, perfume that at one point in her life perhaps was used to enhance her attractiveness to men, she's like, you know what, I'm giving it all to Jesus. If I'm never attracted to another man, I don't care. I have, I have Jesus and she just wasted, as it were, upon, upon him. This is clearly an act of not just devotion, but of renunciation. Um, so that's what she does. And she is lavishing her love upon him in this, this way. And Jesus is receiving 
this extravagant expression of love. All we know at this point of the narrative is that this woman is in deep emotion and going to this extreme to express her love to Jesus. Well, there's a second development that moves us closer to this question that gets asked, who is this who forgives even sins? And that is that Jesus is criticized for receiving this woman's demonstrations of love. He's criticized. He's thought less of because he receives what this woman is doing. It says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, the Pharisee, said to himself, so he's not saying this out loud. He says this to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him and that she is a sinner. So now we see this is exactly how Simon thought of her. That's why Luke introduced her to us as a sinner. And uh, so think about, think about what's going on in the mind of Simon. He thinks that his thinking might reveal what he thinks of her. He doesn't realize it, but he's really revealing a lot about his own view of himself in comparison to her. For Simon to refer to her, this Pharisee to refer to her as a sinner, clearly implies that he did not see himself as a sinner. I'm the holy one. She is the sinner. And so this Pharisee, he, he wasn't startled and amazed and touched that Jesus would receive his gesture of kindness. He invited Jesus into his home, come over for a meal, and Jesus... I mean, imagine how glorious this would be for all of us. Actually goes into the home of this guy and reclines there and is eating a meal with him. And Simon is not thinking, man, if Jesus really knew the truth about me, would he be eating with me? I'm totally blown away that Jesus would receive my gesture of kindness after all that I've done throughout my life. No, Simon's not amazed at all. In fact, he probably thinks Jesus is the privileged one that he can come into my home. And so... He's not startled, humbled, amazed that Jesus would receive his gesture of kindness. But this woman comes in and begins to show kindness to Jesus. And Simon the Pharisee is like, man, if Jesus really knew the truth about her, he wouldn't be receiving her gesture of kindness. You see the pride there and him clearly thinking that he is better than her. And this Pharisee actually makes some inferences about Jesus based on what he observes. Uh, and here's his thinking process. If Jesus knew who this woman is, he would not allow her to touch him. He's allowing her to touch him, thereby revealing that he must not know the truth about her. And if he does not know the truth about her, then he is not a prophet of God. So we observe that Simon the Pharisee is far away from thinking Jesus is God or the Son of God or the Messiah. He's not even sure Jesus is a prophet. In fact, all it takes is this single moment and he's concluding Jesus can't even be at the status of a prophet. Had Jesus, and Jesus knows this, had Jesus kicked this woman away and said, get away from me, you trampled rose. Simon and the others in the room would have said, whoa, now there's a prophet. He's a prophet of God. They would have thought more highly of him. 
had he kicked her away and not received her expressions of love. And Jesus knows that. He knows that. And yet Jesus is willing here to be thought less of by the Pharisees in his effort to receive the affections of this woman who had the reputation of being a sinner. Here is Jesus intentionally choosing to offend the proud as he grants grace to the humble. Well, Jesus knows what Simon is thinking, and that brings up the third development as we move toward the question that is going to be asked, and that is that Jesus prods Simon to consider the relationship between forgiveness and love. It's interesting. Simon's like, Jesus doesn't know the truth about this woman. Therefore, he's not a prophet. Jesus, by his response, gives every indication that, Simon, I know exactly what you've been thinking. Okay? You question whether I'm a prophet or not because you think there's something I don't know. Even though you've not even voiced Uh, your thoughts out loud. I know exactly what you're thinking and I want to speak to that right now. Verse 40, And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, Say it, teacher. And Jesus said, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. One owed a little over a year and a half's wages And the other owed about two months of wages. And neither of them were able to pay their debt. And so it says in verse 42, Jesus says, When they were unable to repay, he, the lender, graciously forgave them both. And Jesus then asked this question, Which of these two, therefore, will love him more? It's a good question. So one is... uh, Indebted by uh, 50 denarii and the other 500, they both are unable to pay. They both get forgiven of their debt. And Jesus says, which of those two would naturally tend to love the lender more? Well, verse 43, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Commentators indicate that Simon knows at this point that he's been had and that he's walking into a trap, and so he's reluctant to answer. So he's like, well, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. That's the correct answer. So the principle that Jesus is establishing here is the greater the debt that is forgiven, the greater love that the debtor has for the one who has forgiven him. That's the principle that he's laying down, and we all would understand that. In the topsy-turvy, upside-down world of the gospel, this is, this is just a phenomenal reality that we just need to take to the bank. You know, we, we think that, you know, I've sinned worse than other people, uh, and somehow that puts me at some distance from God and... I can never amount to what other people might become who have sinned less than than I have. Jesus is basically laying down a principle here that even granting that your sins are worse than anyone else's in this room, even if that were true, Jesus is saying, if you let me put my forgiveness on top of those sins that you have committed... 
It will literally turn your memory of those sins into power generators of love for me. And your capacity to love me could be the greatest of all who are gathered in this room. Now, we have to be careful with this principle, right? Lest some say, well, man, I, I want to love God. I want to love Him a lot. And uh, so if you've got to be forgiven much to love much, then uh, I'm going to go this week and commit the biggest sins that I can imagine. And then I will receive God's grace. And then I will be able to love God more than anyone else in this church loves Him. Uh, we all know that that's not the right way to think. In fact, in God's economy, it's not even really that there are sins that are worse than other sins. The idea here is the perception. It's how one perceives his, his sins. One person can be immoral and they don't feel that bad about it at all. They might say, yeah, it was wrong or they might justify it. And then someone else over here commits what many would consider to be a lesser sin but their conscience is stricken over what they have done and they make a big deal out of their sin and they cry out to God for grace and mercy and forgiveness and God grants that and that person is now exploding with love for the God who has forgiven him or her. Does that make sense? So how big do you see your sins? That's the issue. It's easy for us to see our own sins as small, and other people's sins as big. But the problem is, as long as I see my sins as small, then that reduces my capacity to experience the grace of God. If my sins are small, then my appreciation of God's grace will forever be small. And if my appreciation of God's grace is small, then my capacity to love God is limited and made smaller as a result. But if I see my sins as a big deal and I receive God's grace for those big deal sins, then God's grace is a big deal and I've now enlarged my capacity to love Him. And Jesus is laying down this principle and then He begins to explain it and that brings us to the fourth development that brings us closer to this question and that is that Jesus contrasts Simon's treatment of him with the woman's treatment of him. It says, in turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I'm sure Simon would have been, of course I see her. I'm wondering, Jesus, whether you see her. And Jesus would probably he'd say, no, 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 Simon, look again. Do you really see this woman? You think you see this woman and that I don't see her, but I see her and you're not seeing her. You see this woman in the context of her sin history. You know nothing of my work of grace that has been going on in her heart that brings her here at this moment. Do you see this woman and embodied in that, Jesus is not only going to help Simon to see this woman, but he wants to help Simon to see himself by way of contrast. He says, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. You didn't even give me water to wash my own feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a towel to dry my feet with, he says, but she has wiped my feet with her hair. 
So you didn't give me any water. You didn't give me a towel to to wash my own feet with. Uh, You didn't wash my feet yourself. You didn't send one of your servants to do it. You didn't extend that basic courtesy to me. But this woman has outshone you in what she has done for me. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, a customary greeting when someone would come into your home just to give them a kiss of greeting was totally normal, an act of courtesy. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil. This was a way to show honor to an honored guest. Think of Psalm 23. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. It was just a way to honor people that you especially wanted to honor that you head into your home for a meal. He says, you didn't anoint my head with oil. Speaking of basic olive oil that was plentiful in Israel, it was cheap. You can get it on the cheap. You didn't even anoint my head with basic common oil, but she has anointed my feet with this expensive and costly perfume. And for this reason, I say to you, Simon, her sins, which are many. Stop right there for a second. Jesus does not minimize her sins. He does not excuse her sins. He does not ignore her sins. He sees her sins and he calls her sin, sin. He knows the number of them and he knows that they are many. If you're looking for a savior who will excuse your sins and minimize your sins, Jesus is not the Savior for you. Jesus is not going to excuse or minimize your sins. He will call them what they are. They are sins. They are violations of the law of God. And He knows the number of them. They are many. And that's what He does with this woman. He says she has sinned. And her sins are many, but these sins have been forgiven. The idea is they have at some point in the past been dismissed or forgiven with the abiding result being that right now as I speak, she still stands forgiven. What Jesus is indicating is that at some point prior to this, please understand, guys, this is not a woman showing up here in search of forgiveness. This is a woman who's already experienced forgiveness. Something amazing has happened in her life. She's had a previous encounter with the Lord Jesus. Either she's heard the truth about Him and believed in Him, or she's met up with Him before and believed in Him. She has experienced forgiveness, and she knows this deep in her bones. And she is moved with love for Jesus and gratitude to Jesus to show up on this occasion and to lavish her love upon Him. This is what forgiven sinners do. And Jesus says, for this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. Understand the wording here. Jesus is not saying she's been forgiven because she's loved much. And I, in return to this great love that she has shown me, am going to respond by forgiving her. That's not the point. If that were the point, it would defeat the whole purpose, right, of the parable Jesus just told. But what he's saying is, this woman's sins, which are many, 
have been forgiven. And you can know that because she is loving much. You know what she has already experienced by the love that she is right now showing to me. And then, no doubt, Jesus looks at Simon and says, but he is forgiven. He who is forgiven little loves little. He who sees his sins as a little thing can only love little. If your sins are little, your experience of grace is little. And if your experience of grace is little, then you can only love little, if at all. And Simon, that's why you have loved me little. That's why this woman has loved me much. Fundamentally, the two of you see your sin problem in a vastly different way. She sees her sin as big. You see your sins as little. And she has received my grace. And that has enlarged her capacity to show this extravagant love that has far outshone the kindness that you have shown me, Simon. That leads to a fifth development, and that is that Jesus tells this woman that her sins are forgiven. Jesus looks at this woman in verse 48, and he said to her, your sins have been uh, forgiven. Again, your sins at some point in the past, perfect tense, your sins have been forgiven at some point in the past, with the abiding result being that they stand forgiven right now as I speak to you. Now, guys, to... To really appreciate what's happening here, uh, try to think of a timeline in terms of three moments in this, this woman's life. Um, there was an earlier occasion, obviously, we've established that, right? When she would have believed in Jesus and experienced forgiveness through Him. Is that clear? So she's not showing up in search of forgiveness. She's already experienced forgiveness. And she knows it's so deep in her bones, she's moved by it, that she's showing up here in order to express her love, her gratitude, her appreciation to Jesus. So, in the timeline of her journey, she's already experienced forgiveness in a way that she knows that she has been forgiven. And then, even on this occasion, in verse 47, she's looking, or Jesus is looking at her, as he's talking to Simon, and she hears Jesus say to Simon, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. So she gets to hear it again, that her sins have been forgiven her. And then if that is not enough, Jesus looks at her in verse 48 and says it yet again. It says, and he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. You say, why? Why does Jesus essentially say this to her three times? The prior incident when she already experienced forgiveness. And then in verse 47, she hears him say, you're forgiven. And now verse 48, Jesus says it to her again. Why does Jesus repeat himself? Mom, dad, why do you tell your children I love you every day? Why do you tell them I love you several times a day? Why do you tell your husband, your wife, I love you? You could say, you know what? I told them that on my wedding day. They've heard it. You know what, honey? I told you I loved you 25 years ago. When that changes, I'll let you know. 
Is that the way we are? No. It's like, you know what? They know that I... My wife knows that I love her, but you know what? I want to say it again. I want to remind her. I want to affirm her. My child knows that I love them, but I want to say it again. And that's what Jesus is doing here. She's already been forgiven. She already heard him say it in verse 47. And Jesus is like, I'd like to say it again. Your sins are forgiven. What we see here is a beautiful glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ. That He is not just a Savior who forgives us of our sins, but He is a Savior who will reaffirm and restate and remind us of His forgiveness of our sins, however often our hearts need to hear it. Isn't that great? You know, when Paul in Ephesians 1 says, You've been re- you have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of your sins, was that a newsflash to any of the Ephesians? Were they like, wow, you know, I never knew that. I've, I've known the Lord for 20 years. And uh, I didn't know that my sins were forgiven. I'm, I'm really grateful you said that, Paul. No, everyone in the Ephesian church knew it. They knew they had been forgiven. But the Spirit of God is saying to Paul, hey, say it again. Say it again. We have a Savior who delights to remind us as often as our hearts need it. To say to us, if He has to say it to us a hundred times, He'll do that. I have forgiven you. You are forgiven. You are forgiven. About a month ago or so, I, um, I woke up on a Monday morning and um, lying in bed, my eyes open, just my first moments of consciousness. And the very first thought that came to my mind was that of a loving Heavenly Father saying to me, I've justified you. I didn't concoct that or try to make that happen, but I wake up and that's what I hear in my mind. Uh, I just hear the Father saying, I've justified you. And I chuckled inside because I'm thinking, you know what, I already knew that. But it sure is nice of you, Lord, to remind me of this fact first thing in the morning. And that's who our God is. He justifies. He forgives. And then He likes to keep telling us so. And He'll tell us as often as our hearts need to hear it. That's what He does to this woman. And we're going to see in just a second, He's not done. That leads to the question. Development number six. People are left asking, who is this who forgives even sins? And those who were reclining at the table with Him began to say to themselves, Who is this man who even forgives sins or literally who forgives even sins? The idea is partly some of these people have seen Jesus send away leprosy and send away lameness or a fever that someone has been afflicted with. He has sent away various physical afflictions and maladies But now they're watching him sending away sins and of all sins, the sins of this uniquely, according to their view, sinful woman. They're amazed that Jesus would send away and dismiss even sins like this woman has committed. And Jesus looks at her and says, your sins are dismissed. 
They are erased from the record books of heaven. I send them away from between you and me. I've already done that. I just want you to know, I want to reaffirm you in this, that your sins, though they are many, are not between you and me. Your sins, though they are many, are not between you and the Father. Your sins have been dismissed. They are not being held against you any longer by me, by my Father. They will not be held against you at the judgment. They are erased from the record books of heaven. And so Jesus is just dismissing, reaffirming his dismissal of the sins that this woman has committed. And that leads to the seventh and final development of the story. And that is that Jesus encourages this woman with words of salvation and peace. If Jesus has not already made it clear enough, he makes it even more clear. Verse 50, and he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. You are a rescued woman. You have been saved with the abiding result being that you stand saved and delivered, rescued right now as I speak to you, Jesus says. Your faith has saved you. You've been rescued. This is just another way of saying you're forgiven. You've been rescued from the guilt of your sins, from the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins. You've been delivered from the power of your sins. And it's your faith that has done that. It's not your works Part of what he's saying is, I appreciate the love that you have just shown me, but I want you to know you don't need to do that to keep me favorably disposed towards you. You don't have to do works of righteousness to get or maintain my forgiveness. It's just your faith. It's not your works. It's just, just look to me. The fact that you have believed in me is what has brought about this forgiveness that you now enjoy and are so moved by. Your faith has saved you. And then he says, go in peace. Literally, this could be translated, go into peace. He's not so much telling her go away from him as much as he's telling her where to go or what to go into. And he's saying there is peace. There is peace. This is the Greek equivalent of the um, Hebrew word shalom that speaks of flourishing. It speaks of wholeness. It speaks of the luxurious presence of all that is needed for a person to experience wholeness between them and God and within themselves and in their relationships with others. And Jesus is saying there is this luxury. There is this wholeness that is now available to you. And I just want to exhort you to go into that and walk in that and hold your chin high as the daughter of God that you are. Brothers and sisters, behold your Savior in this passage today. He is one who forgives what many would consider to be the worst of sins. He delights to do so. He is a Savior who not only forgives, but delights to tell us so. However, often our hearts need to hear it. He is one who is willing to be rejected by the proud because of the grace and the love that he shows to those who are humble and who are broken. He is a Savior who inspires really intense devotion in the hearts of people. Um, if you're here today and you're a believer in Jesus, but you feel convicted by the love she's showing Jesus, and you're like, man, I just don't love Him to that degree. Just stop and ask, what is it that this woman is clued into that maybe I'm not clued into? 
And maybe pride is blocking your ability to love Jesus. Maybe you're holding on to sin and you need to release those sins and renounce them and confess your sins to God. Maybe you do have sin in your life, but you're making a little deal of those sins and making a big deal out of the sins of of other people. And so your experience of God's grace has been truncated as a result of that. And thus your ability to love him is limited as well. But look at this woman's intense devotion to Jesus and just ponder what it is that's happened in her life. Jesus tells you what's happened in her life that has inspired this intense devotion. We also see here a Savior who is happy and willing to receive our most intense and fervent expressions of worship. He was willing to suffer the rejection of a Pharisee to show this woman gracious love. The same Savior was willing to suffer rejection even from His Father at the cross in order that He might be your Savior from sin. And I'm just telling you, if you're here today, listen, you may not have thought of it this way. You may know intuitively that you have brokenness in your life. I'm here to tell you that the Bible gives you vocabulary to understand what it is that's wrong in your life, and it's sin. You have a sin problem, and you have a God problem. You have a problem between you and God. God is a just God, and you stand before this God who is righteously indignant at the sins that you and I have committed throughout our lives. But Christ has come into the world to live the life we failed to live, to die the death that we deserve to die. God raised Him from the dead, and Jesus is right now at the right hand of the Father. He can do whatever He pleases. And from that position of absolute lordship, He freely... He can do whatever He wants. And what's He doing? He's giving out righteousness and relationship and love and freedom and power to anyone who sees their bankruptcy and looks to Him and says, You are the Savior for me. If you've never turned your eyes to Jesus and believed in Him as your Lord and Savior, please do that today. And you will find yourself in the beginnings of an amazing journey of... Loving God the way that this woman displays in this passage. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us to experience the fullness of this. If the Lord has touched your heart in any way, if there's any way we can pray for you, please uh, just indicate that on the back of the connection card. If you're a first time, second time, third time visitor, let us know that. Just put that on the back of the connection um, or that information on the connection card and you can put that in the offering bag as it goes by in just a moment. Lord, we thank you for your amazing love for us. You have loved us who are your children with forgiveness and then you love us by just telling us again and again and again of your forgiveness, your grace and your love. What a thoughtful Savior You are. You always know the right thing to say. You always know what our hearts most need. You inspired this story to be included in the Scriptures because you knew we needed this. And you knew we needed it today. I pray that if there's any here who have not looked to You, Jesus, and just just cried out to You and just said, Lord, Jesus, be my Savior. 
I pray that your spirit would just be at work in their hearts and supernaturally enable them to see you as you are, Jesus, and to believe in you today. We thank you for this opportunity to give of our offerings to you, Lord. Receive these funds and do much with them for the glory of your name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.